God is good, isn't he? He is good. He's good. He's good. I'm glad to see you. And uh, I'm just so thankful for what um, you bring to the table. I'm thankful that uh, this is in no way a one-man, two-man, ten-man show. But God has brought us all together as pieces of the body and uh, put us where he saw best fit. Whether we like it or not, that's where he saw best fit. And I'm glad he did it. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? For the last two Sundays, we've been on this track in Acts chapter 2 and um, taking a look at what it looks like to be a, a church full of the Spirit and all that, that, that comes from that. Just like the early church started out with a bang and they didn't slow down, they didn't quiet down, uh, but God did some great things in them. And so we're going to read again um, some of the first things that happened amongst that a group of believers in the new in the early church and the brand new church that just got started in the book of Acts and and we're going to see uh, just as we've done the last two weeks we're going to study some of those things individually. Last week we uh, took a look at uh, the fact that they were devoted to teaching, what that meant to being devoted to teaching, what it meant to be devoted to being taught, to truly be a disciple taught of the Lord, and so we're going to move on to some of the next things, and if, if you'll turn to the book of Acts chapter 2, and I want you to make a deal with me, but more, more than that, I'd like you to make a deal with yourself and with God. In fact, I wonder if I could get you to say it. Will you just say this after me? I will not. I will not apply this sermon to someone else. This is not for someone else. This is for me. I refuse to think of other people and say, boy, I hope they're hearing this because I need to hear this. This is for me. I will not sick the Holy Spirit on someone else. I want the Holy Spirit to change me. All right, deal. We made a deal. Don't go back on it. It is so tempting when we start talking, because it, the next thing we're going to stumble upon in Acts chapter 2, and we've been on this track for three weeks, so, you know, we've been heading this direction. But it's so tempting when we start talking about relationships and the body and things like that for us to go, oh, man, I hope they're hearing this. Because really, they need it more than anyone else. And you start applying it to people in your mind, and, and uh, quite frankly, that's just not how it works. You find that when you really approach the throne of God and you really talk to Jesus about your issues, he rarely talks about other people and what they need to do differently. You know why? Because he's talking to them. He's talking to you so you can change you. Well, so that he can change you. So it's tempting for us to say, well, boy, <laughs> they're not here, but I'm going to get them the CD. Well, you know, you can do that. But... It's more important that you hear it for yourself. You let the Holy Spirit work on you, and you let God deal with the other stuff. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized, his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Once again, church of 120 goes to a church of 3,000. There might be some logistical issues there. There might be some organizational issues that come up, right? If the church exploded from 120 to 3,000, don't you think people are going to bump heads at some point? Somebody's going to, there's going to be some friction somewhere. They have not prepared for this type of growth. That's where we need the Holy Spirit. Here's what, he, here's what happens. They were continually, do you know continually doesn't leave you any room to take a break from it. Continually means continually. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it says this, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind, thank God, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. A healthy church draws people to it. A healthy church will draw people not to not necessarily to the church as in a, that group of people, but the, a healthy church will draw people to Jesus because Jesus said the number one indicator, the number one indicator that you're my disciples is your love. That's the one thing, and I've said it many times, it's, it's the mark of spiritual maturity. It's the truest mark of spiritual maturity is love. There's no greater mark because we find out in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can do, that there could be signs and wonders. You could give your body to be burned. You could give all your money, all your possessions away to the poor, and you could still not have love, and none of it would count. The scripture tells us there will be, there'll be a day where there's lying signs and wonders. Even those could lie. The one thing you can never fake is the true, genuine love of God. And it is the one mark, it is the truest mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because you preach well. He didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because of your accent. He doesn't say, you know, they'll know you're my disciples because you know all the stories. He said, they will know you're my disciples. Here's the proof that your mind is the love that you have that you didn't have before. The Lord was adding to their number. Thank God they didn't have to do it, the Lord did it. The Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. So here's the thing. Today we're going to talk about two of those elements, which was the fellowship and the breaking of bread. I think we've really sold ourselves short on, on our definition of fellowship. In the 20th and 21st century, fellowship has become, you know, cake and ice cream downstairs, coffee together. You ever said we were fellowshipping together as a way of just, we were talking, we were just hanging out? Scripturally, fellowship is so much more than that. The Greek word kinonia is used throughout the New Testament, sometimes translated as fellowship, sometimes translated as partnership, sometimes translated as participation. When you look at it from the broad lens of all the times it's used, it's a lot more than having a potluck somewhere. It's a lot more than occasionally getting together for board games. It's way more than that. It indicates that they fully bought into this. They became part of something. Really, it is fellowship. They became fellows. They became partners in something. They became one. You know, when Paul talks about uh, the church giving themselves and giving what they had, he said that, I, I thank God for your, your fellowship in the gospel or your participation in the gospel. It's the same word. It's that kinonia, that, that, that participation, that joining together. And so we, we've kind of used fellowship as a way of saying we hung out. But fellowship is not a verb, it's a noun. It's not something you do. It's something you have. It's something you are. You're, you're partners in the ministry. You are fellows. You are joined together. Really, we can't choose to come in and out, or we shouldn't choose to come to, to say this is a time of fellowship because really, once you became a believer, you entered into the fellowship with Jesus Christ. And whether you like it or not, that included fellowship with his body. I hope you like it. I say whether you like it or not, but I really hope you like it. I hope you're not bemoaning this fact and saying, oh, God, I wish it were different. I, I, and, I, God, I, I wish you could change this all. Can I go and minister to the monkeys on some island? And I mean monkeys that, that really don't need ministry. They, they have no ability to comprehend what I'm saying, but can I just live a monastic life and, and be alone with you for the rest of my life? And that's impossible. And you see... There's different applications of this fellowship. First of all, they were together. You know, when it says they were together, it doesn't just mean physically together. They were together. Sometimes we can all be in the same room and yet be on totally different planes, be totally different places, be totally different minds, be divided. But they were together and they were continuing with one mind to the temple. You know, that's important because when they went to the temple, they did not encounter a bunch of other believers. You got to know that they were, this, was, this was Jerusalem. The temple was not a Christian temple. 
It was a Jewish temple. Now, these guys, most of them were still Jewish, right? No, there hadn't been any Gentiles added to the number yet. So these are all Jewish people. Now, some of these Jewish people were from different parts of the world, but they were still inherently Jewish. That's why they were in town on the Feast of Pentecost. So when they went to the temple, they weren't finding just believers in Jesus. They found all sorts of things. And it was real important that they went together with one mind. They needed to be united. They were devoting themselves to this kind of fellowship. This fellowship means to not only to be together, not only to be partnered together, but to consider that we're all in this together. And it, it indicated also a sharing, a, um, what's mine is yours kind of heart. And you know, that can't be mandated. You can't tell people, I want you to give your possessions away and share it with somebody else. That just doesn't work. That's kind of dictatorship stuff. And it just, it always fails. You know, we've looked throughout history and communism in its secular form fails every time. Yes. Doesn't it? It's not successful. It's never been successful. The reason China has become successful is because they've basically become capitalistic. And I'm not saying that capitalism is the greatest thing in the world either, but I'm just saying communism has failed. And yet something happened here. They were not told you had to give this stuff away, but the Spirit of God did something in them where they considered that this person is part of me now. And if they hurt, I hurt. If they're doing without, it's like me doing without. So they begin to share. It's something that God did in them. It's interesting. This happened right after the day of Pentecost where they're all filled, right? But in two chapters later where they come together for a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit fills them up again, it says, again, great grace was on them all. In fact, let me read it to you. It says here, after they pray, the place that they were praying in was shaken. Now, can you imagine if we're here at church and all of a sudden the building starts to shake and you know it's not an earthquake because we're Lloyd Minster, so what in the world is this? The place starts to shake and yet there's a, there's a knowledge inside yourself that this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. See, because you had the Holy, they had the Holy Spirit. So I, I guarantee you the Holy Spirit inside of them was saying, don't you worry, this is of me. And as that place is shaking, they're filled with the Spirit again. And look at the result of that. Look at the result of what happened. In verse 31 of chapter 4, it says, And when they prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are all Spirit-filled believers. These are not new believers. These were the same believers that were there on the day of Pentecost. They were already filled. But you know, the Holy Spirit will not leave you, but you do need to remain full. Yes. And the more you're full of the Holy Spirit, the less you have room for other things. Your own agenda, your own, your own plans and plots and ways, they, go, they get pushed out of the way and and, and, and that Holy Spirit inside you becomes the big thing in your life. So it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit again and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's, I mean, that's an automatic result of the Spirit in your life. You speak the word of God with boldness. Doesn't matter if you're a shy person. Doesn't matter if you're an introvert. Doesn't matter if you're tongue-tied or a stammerer. The Holy Spirit's able to give you what to say. And it says this, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Does that sound familiar? This is what happens when people get filled with the Spirit. They're of one heart and one soul. Why? Because if you're filled with the Spirit, like I said, that pushes out all the other stuff, doesn't it? You can't be full of you and full of the Spirit at the same time. You can't be self-absorbed and absorbed in Him at the same time. Right? It just doesn't work. The more you're full of him, the more of your own self gets pushed out. You say, well, am I going to be unique anymore? Absolutely, because who you were created to be in Christ is very unique. But unique doesn't have to mean rebellious. And so the more you're full of the spirit, the more of that you, the old self that you used to be, that gets pushed out of the way. And... And if what's filling your life is the Holy Spirit and what's filling your friend's life is the Holy Spirit and it's the same Holy Spirit, don't you think you'll be on the same page? Because you're not filled with a different Holy Spirit. 
You don't have your own custom-made Holy Spirit. It's, it's the same Spirit in all of us, right? So we're all on equal footing. We're all on a level ground, and we're all in with one mind and one heart if we're being filled with the Spirit. Now, if you notice, when people start dividing in different ways, and you see it all through the New Testament, it happened in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes about it. He writes about the divisions that came. And you'll recall some of them had favorite preachers and favorite pastors. And they started uniting behind those people. And the Apostle Paul says something, and it's, it's important for us to say to ourselves every now and then. He says, is Christ divided? What's the answer? No, no may it never be. Is Christ divided? No. And he says this, and, and, and I love 1 Corinthians 2. Because you have people that will tell you, you can never know the will of God. Oh, it's too far. And they'll quote the scripture that says his ways are higher than ours, his thoughts are higher than ours. And thank God his ways are higher than ours. Thank God his thoughts are higher than ours. They'll even read this verse in 1 Corinthians 2 where it says, No man knows, no heart is seen, no, no ear is heard what God has prepared for those that love him. But then he says, But... We have not received the spirit which is from the world, but the spirit which is from God. And it says that this spirit, just like the only one that knows your heart is your own heart, the only one that knows your thoughts is your own heart, your own spirit. He says in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But we've received, and that's the spirit we have received that searches even the depths of God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not using human words, but translating spiritual thoughts for spiritual people. Now, here's the deal. Doesn't that sound awesome? He's saying you can know the will of God. He says there's deep things in the spirit that, I, that God gave us to talk to you about. I mean, don't we all want to know more about God? Don't we want to know his will? Don't we want to know his heart? We all say that, right? I want to know the will of God. I want to know the heart of God. He says all of these things that are hidden in the depths of God, all of these things that he has planned for you that no one's ever imagined, he says we've received the Spirit, which tells us these things. And he says God gave it to us to speak to you. And, and right after you get also built up thinking, yes. I can know these deep things of God. They're going to tell us these great things of God. Then he goes on and says, right in the next verse, which goes into chapter 3, he says this, but I could not talk to you as spiritual men. We couldn't tell you this stuff. We had such deep things to talk to you about. We had great things to talk to you about, but we couldn't. Why? Because you're still being fleshly. And what was the evidence that they were being fleshly? What does fleshly mean? Fleshly is the opposite of being of the Spirit, right? When you received the Spirit of God, when you were born again, you received His nature. And you have to choose to walk in that nature. You can choose to follow your own flesh. Your flesh is who you, is, is those, are those base instincts, those, the things you were before you were born again. You know, your instinct to, ha to get revenge, your instinct to get angry, your instincts to, you know, um, to be jealous, your instincts to be bitter. All of these things are fleshly. They're not of God. They're part of a sinful world. And you were walking in these things, but now you've been born again. You've been set free from that. So he gave you his nature. But he says to the church in Corinth, here's the problem with you. I'm supposed to be able to talk to you like spiritual people, but I can't because you're being fleshly. You're acting like babies, he says. Why? What was the indication that they were fleshly? What was the indication that they were not spiritual people? What was the reason he could not share spiritual truths with them? It says because you were being fleshly, because you had these jealousies and bitterness and strife and division. And that is a fleshly thing. You recall in Galatians chapter 6, where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. We love the fruits of the Spirit, don't we? You know, I used to, as I've told you before, we did a Bible study when I was a little kid. We had a cassette tape devotional that we'd listen to. And it made the fruits of the Spirit actual fruit. So they had, you know, honeydew faithfulness and obedience bananas and all that. And it was a lot of fun. 
And I still remember some of those stupid songs, you know, not stupid, silly. <laughs> and they're stuck in my head and I can't get them out. But, uh, you know, we memorize the fruits of the Spirit, so we should. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, you know, all these things. But, you know, right there it also says, here's the fruits of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident. What were the deeds of the flesh? There were things like jealousy, strife, envy, bitterness. Now, he says, here's your indicator, whether you're walking in the flesh or the spirit. You, now, you as a believer have the choice. He says, here's the indicator, whether you're walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh. If you're noticing a lot of strife in your life, a lot of bitterness, a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy, something's broken. Something's missing. Because the fruits of the Spirit include words like love, like long-suffering. Do we talk about that very much? I haven't seen too many Christian t-shirts that talk about love, long-suffering. I haven't heard too many songs by Amy Grant that talk about long-suffering. We haven't heard too many songs from Amy Grant at all, but <laughs> these days, just trying to reach you at your level. He's so out of touch. <laughs> words like patience, gentleness, kindness. Do you know most of these words have very little to do with you talking to Jesus? Most of those words have very little to do with you and Jesus and your relationship. Most of them only apply to you with other people. You don't have to be long-suffering with God. He doesn't do anything wrong. Well, we think... Well, I'm supposed to act that way to people that are acting right, but this person is in the wrong. Since when do you have to be long-suffering with, with somebody who's doing the right thing? I mean, come on. Jared comes over here and mows the church lawn. I'm not saying, oh, I've got to put up with him. He's <laughs> trying, to, trying to get some work done. All I can smell was grass. Oh. I don't have to be long-suffering with somebody who's doing the right thing. You've got to be long-suffering with people that are, that are doing stupid things, that are hurting you, that are abusing you. And God knows, and I mean that literally, not as a figure of speech. God knows that if you're going to be used by God, you are setting yourself up to be abused by people. You, everybody wants to be in the ministry. I want you to be in the ministry too, but let me tell you, that means you will get stuff thrown at you that you did not deserve. And you don't get to respond every time. In fact, you don't get to respond at all. There's a, there's a great verse that's talking about those that have set themselves apart for ministry in the local body. And he says, the servant of God must not strive. Must not be in strife. It means you're not allowed to fight. Now, there are fights you have to pick. Oh, man, I mean, I'm telling you, when you're um, in ministry, you have to fight all the time. But the weapons of your warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. We're moving into the spirit. So when the church was full of the spirit, they had this joining together, this kinania, this fellowship. There was breaking of bread. They were having meals house to house. The breaking of bread can be talking about the Lord's table, communion, but we also know they were taking meals together as well. We know that they were spending time together. And we know that they were saying if some person had need... I can feel that need. These are big things. And we don't get to choose whether we'd be part of that or not. We don't get to choose whether that's going to be our version of church. The scripture says it very clearly. Is Christ divided? May it never be. Now, in order for you to be one, and in order for you to consider this person a part of your body and part of you and, and, and be able to share everything and trust them with things, you're going to have to get over some things about them that just don't match with what you think they should be or who they, you think that they should be. In order for that to work, there's going to have to be a whole lot of grace. There's going to have to be a whole lot of love. What does the scripture say? Be fervent. Actually, it says keep fervent. That's important, isn't it? When you first got born again, do you remember the feeling? Remember how just colors were different? Remember how life was just all of a sudden awesome? And you just thought everybody was great. 
I've talked to many new believers that they come into church and though they may be freaked out at times, there may be some weird stuff like what was going on there. They still, you know, when you first get born again, you're just like, I love these people. Everybody's so nice. Everybody's so great. Give it some time. <laughs> you find out not everybody's so great that you thought they were. So it says keep fervent in your love because that love, the Bible says the love of God is poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. That's where it came from. You have to keep fervent in your love. Fervent does not sound like a light thing. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. The word for sin means to miss the mark. You know, when we sinned against God, we missed his mark. But I believe that there that this verse is also referring to times where people have missed our mark. Because plenty of times, once you spend enough time with somebody, if you're going to trust somebody, if you're going to consider this person part of you and you part of them, if you're going to share with somebody, then you better believe that there's going to have to be some trust there. And if there's trust, you, you have certain expectations of people, don't you? The closer you are to somebody, the higher your expectations are. I mean, a stranger in the mall that doesn't compliment your hair, even though you just had it changed, doesn't affect you that much. They could even say, I don't like your hair. And you don't, you, you might go, what a jerk, you know, and you might, it might affect you for a little bit. And some of you would let it affect you for the rest of the day. <laughs> but it might not affect you as much as somebody you really loved. Or what about this? Let's put it in the other sense. These people that you just met, they don't call you on your birthday, no big deal. You have very low expectations for these people. I have very low expectations for the lady at the bank counter. Very low. No offense to her, but I don't expect her to remember my birthday, even though she's got it on her computer. <laughs> I don't expect her to call me, send me a card. But my wife, I have very different expectations for her. And rightly so. To be fair, she's never forgotten my birthday or anything like that. But the closer you are to somebody, the more you love them, the more, the, the more you are attached to them, the higher your expectations. And guess what? That's a good thing. But here's the thing that will happen. They will occasionally miss those marks. And the Bible says if you're fervent in your love, love will cover and fill the gaps and make up the difference when they miss the mark. And we have to have that. You know, I'm so reminded every day, and I'm not talking to you, I'm talking about me. I am so reminded every day of that parable that Jesus told. The parable that Jesus told about the man who had a great debt and his master forgave him such a great debt. And immediately after, he went to a man that owed him a much smaller debt and said, give me my money. When the man didn't give him his money, he threw him in prison. And the master calls him back and said, didn't I forgive you of such a great debt? Why, are you, why won't you forgive this man? And I'm reminded of that continually. And we must be. You've got to remember how much Jesus forgave you of. How much he forgave you for. Not only did he just forgive you, he actually made up the difference. He paid the debt. He didn't just forgive the debt, he paid it. He laid himself down for it. So this really helps when you have to make up some difference for somebody else because you just remember, I'll never have to do it as much as Jesus did it for me. I, I, I'm never going to have to forgive them as much as Jesus forgave me. This fellowship that they had in the body of Christ in the early church was so tight that nobody had to tell them to, to sell their property and give it to somebody who had need. They just did it because they loved each other and because they were one. And they were continuing with one mind. And they were of one heart. And because they were of one mind and one heart, they had one voice. And that one voice was glorifying God. It's just a big deal in the body of Christ. It's not something to be sold cheaply. It's not something to be given up lightly. Or given up at all. I want to read you something from 1 Corinthians. Many of you know this very well. But as I was praying about today about this section of scripture that we were reading from uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, something just came alive to me in a way that it hadn't before. So 
as I read it, I know you're going to read it saying, I've read this so many times. But there was a word that jumped out at me that affected me differently. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, that's important. The body is one. We are one. We may be different, but we're one. Even as the body is one, yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Christ is not divided. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You know, the word baptized means to be fully immersed. You know, Christianity doesn't work as a hobby. It's a terrible hobby. If it's your hobby, pick, pick something else. Collect stamps, yo-yos. Christianity does not work as a hobby. It only works when you give yourself away. And you've got to let some of yourself, in fact, all of yourself, just die. And I know that sounds bad, but that's good because when you do that, he gives you life. Jesus said, whoever loses his life will find it. Now, here's what he says. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Boy, that's a dramatic statement in that day and age. He's basically saying slaves are the same as us. And in the Roman Empire, that is huge. I love Colossians 3 where he says, doesn't matter. He says, there's no distinction now between slaves and free men. So, when you would go through the market, when you'd go through uh, any, any place in town, the slaves would always have to defer to you. There were certain areas slaves weren't allowed, things slaves weren't allowed to partake in that you were, rights that you had that they didn't have. And then what happens is, and this must have jolted them, once they came into the church, those differences were not allowed. They were not allowed to make the slaves sit somewhere over there. In fact, the book of James, he rails against them. And he says, I see what you're doing. You're making the poor people sit at the back and you're letting the fancy people sit on the front. And he rails into them for it. And when they went into the church, the slaves got to sit at the same table and eat the same food. And they didn't say, okay, slaves, you serve us. They served each other. And then, horror of horrors, he says there's no difference between you, Jew, and a Greek. Oh, good Lord. Okay, Jews and Greeks, we'll get together. Okay, we can do that. It's hard, but we can do that. Those Greeks are so snotty about how smart they are. (laughs) The Greeks are saying, those Jews are so snotty about how religious they are. And then he goes and he says, and barbarians. Oh, no, barbarians. You have to let the barbarians, not only in the church, but they're going to wreck everything. I mean, come on, guys. One of the, later on, now maybe they didn't know about these guys yet, but later on, one of the tribes of barbarians that wrecked Rome was actually, were actually called vandals. That's where we get it from. So you can imagine what kind of a mess they make when they come in, how they eat their food. Oh, do we have to eat at the same table as them? They don't even use utensils. They just tear into stuff. And then he goes on and he says, barbarians and Scythians. And Scythians are like the ultra gross barbarians, the really mean ones, the really stupid ones. I mean, they weren't stupid, but they were just super barbaric. (laughs) He says they're all the same. I have a book. It's written by what's known as the father of modern history. The father of modern history wrote this book hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So modern history is a relative term. His name is Herodotus, and he writes about the Scythians and some of the things he tells you about them and their barbarian neighbors. You see, the Scythians had cousins in different tribes that were quite also weird. There was one tribe that when dad would die, you invite all of dad's friends and family over and you kill a cow because we're going to eat that cow. We also chop up dad. Any kids here? All right. You put the kids? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's just say there was a little of dad in all of us. 
and you invite these people to church. You say, come eat with us. There's no difference between you and me because Christ is all. Christ is in all. Now, if those differences could be overcome, don't you think we can overcome our differences? Here's the thing. In a big church, like a real big church, you can get away with being fleshy a little bit. Now, I like big churches. I like small churches. I like them all. Sometimes if you get in a really large church, you can get away with being a little fleshy because you can find people that are just like you that you'd hang out with anyways. Right? We all like hockey. Okay. Now, they'll get on your nerves eventually, but maybe it'll take longer for that to happen. (laughs) But the early church is much like our church. It was very diverse. And you have people right away that are nothing like you. Here's the great indication. I found in my own life the great indication of whether I've been spending the time with Jesus that I need to spend, whether I've been letting myself be filled up with him, or whether I've been, you know, I can tell when I haven't spent enough time with him, I start to get irritated by people. I start to get annoyed easier. You know, that goes away the more time you spend with him, the more you see the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering comes along, gentleness comes along, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, thank God, comes along. I believe it, that, that, that the great indicator in your life, you're looking at all your relationships and they're crumbling at the, at, at the seams, that things are falling apart. There are some indicators there Either your relationship or other people's relationship, most likely a combination of all those things with Jesus aren't what they used to be. And you're starting to rely on the flesh. Here's what we have in common. Instead of saying what we have in common is the greatest thing that we ever had, which is Jesus. Is Christ divided? No. The church was devoted to this fellowship, to this partnership, to this sharing to this oneness. They were devoted to it. To be devoted means you have to be all in. Like I said, Christianity is a terrible hobby. You have to jump in with both feet. I want to continue reading this because I haven't got to the part that really stood out to me yet. It all stands out to me, but there was a part that that really grabbed me as I was praying for the service. He says this, for the body is not one member, but many. Verse 15, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body. That means there's nobody in the body that's not supposed to be there. And there's nobody in the body you can kick out. Everybody is in the body because God put them there. He says this, they are put in the body just as he desired, which means what part of the body you get to be is not up to you, it's up to him. And he says this in verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need on you, need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we, we, not, not just God, not just the angels, but we, bestow, bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body. That's huge. That there would be no division in the body. Is Christ divided? No. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Do you see the care that we have for one another is important? He goes on and he says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. Now, I want you to see what he says in verse 21. He says, the eye cannot, 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 cannot ever say to the hand, I have no need of you. What jumped out to me as I read this was that I have no ability or right to ever say, 
that I don't need the other people in this body. We talk about how much we need Jesus. We talk about how much we need him. But it says, you cannot say, I have no need of this other person. Now, what a position God has put us in where we need each other. We'd all much, sometimes we'd just much rather not need anybody. I don't need anybody, just me and Jesus. But that's not the way Jesus made the body. You can't say, I have no need of you. And if you find yourself saying, I don't need anybody, you, have, you may think that sounds noble and right and strong. And there are times where you will feel like you're walking alone. There's times where you have to encourage yourself in the Lord. There's times where if no one stands up for Jesus, you stand up for him. But that doesn't mean you can say, I don't have need for these people. I don't need you. I don't need you. It says, for we are all members one of another. Now, let me ask you a question. If your hand starts hitting your leg, you don't know why it's hitting, but your hand starts hitting your leg, it starts to hurt. What are you doing when that's happening? Your brain is saying, quit it. And when it's not listening to your brain, you say it out loud, stop that. And when that's not working, your brain sends a signal to your other hand and says, grab it, keep it from happening. You guys are acting like this has never happened to you. (laughs) Only one? I might need to see a doctor. No, no, this hasn't happened to me either. But if it did, you better believe you're screaming at it. What are you doing? Stop that. Picks up some scissors. No, no, quit it. So here's what happens when we do this. James says, you want to know why you bite and devour one another? It's because your own lusts that are in you. He says, but take care that you don't eat each other up. But here's the thing. When you're hurting one another, what do you think the head is saying? Stop that. If you keep hurting one another, are you connected? Are you in, in submission to the head? And guess who the Bible says is the head of the body? Jesus. So you might think you just have a problem with this person and it's just a fight between you two. But here's the deal. When you are harming one another, you are out of sync with the head himself. You might think I'm out of sync with them. I'm just, it's just, just, uh, just between us two. It's never just between you two. It's, it is, you are not, you're not submitted to them as much as you are submitted to Jesus. Now it does say to be submitted to one another in love in the fear of Christ. But when we're hurting one another, when we're fighting with one another, when we're arguing with one another, when we're talking about one another behind each other's backs, you know who we're really hurting, you know who we're really rebelling against? It's Jesus himself. And we have got to crucify the flesh and say, I have no part of you anymore. Because here's the thing, here's what happens when you say, I just have to, I feel like I need it, I need to do this. You are saying, my feelings are above Jesus himself. And you've just made your feelings a nice little idol. They're a God in your life. Your emotions are your God. And I can tell you, apart from him, you can do nothing. Jesus says, if you can't walk in forgiveness, your prayers can't be answered. Why? Because if you can't walk in forgiveness, if you can't forgive, if you, if you refuse to be united, if you're insistent on being divided... If you're letting all that bitterness rule you and all the revenge and all these things, even if you feel you're right, but you're letting those things overtake your life, then guess what? You're out of sync with the head. Apart from him, you can't do nothing. Guys, we've taught you how to believe the word. I've taught you. you've, You've learned far longer than, some of you, longer than I've been alive, have learned what the word of God says about every situation. Can I tell you the key to that, though? If you take the key out of the ignition, nothing works. The key to that is the relationship with Jesus. Apart from him, you can do nothing. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you know. It doesn't matter how many, how many you know how to quote and you know how to say them at the devil. It doesn't matter. You can know all the scriptures. You can know all, everything, everything. You, you think your faith is high. But if you're not connected to the, the head himself, none of this works. None of this has any power in your life. You say, oh, no, I know how to resist the devil. I know how to rebuke him. Let me tell you a key verse. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. He will not flee from you if you're not submitted to God. You know why? Because when you're submitted to God, when he runs away, he's running away from the big guy that's in you. But when you resist the devil and you're not submitted to God, oops, it's just you. 
And he's not that scared of you without him. <laughs> Seven sons of Sceva found that out. Now, I'm not saying you're ever without him. He said he'd never leave you or forsake you. But if you're not submitted to the Lord, if you're, if you're doing your own thing, there's no power in it. There's no anointing in it. There's no help. I don't say this to condemn you. I don't say this to beat you down. I say this to encourage you. Sometimes we read those first two chapters, first four chapters of Acts, and we say, well, that's kind of impossible today. But why? Why is that impossible? Because we're too busy? Because our jobs don't allow it? Do you think people are any more annoying than they were then? No. You think? I guarantee there's annoying people back then. And there's a lot more people that didn't shower back then. That fellowship that he called us to. First John says, because of this blood of Jesus, we have fellowship with him, with, with Jesus, with the Father. And he says, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we don't just have fellowship with him, we have fellowship one with another. Get out of your head that fellowship is just hanging out or talking, having coffee. Fellowship is not something you do, it's something you have. And it is a permanent state, should be. When you were joined to Christ, you were joined to all these wonderful, lovely people. And they will hurt you. They will fail you. They'll do a lot of other nice things too. But there will be times where they hurt you, they fail you, they let you down, they make you angry. And you have to say, what's more important? My submission to the head or my own feelings? What's more important? And you may be right. You may be the one that's right. But you know, Jesus was never wrong. But he was often wronged. And every time he was wronged, he showed us what it looked like to walk in his footsteps. He could have called a legion of angels down. He could have, uh, there was one time where a, a village didn't receive his word. Do you remember that? And James and John come to him and they go, I have a plan. We've been talking. Don't shoot it down right away. It's got merit to it. You're going to go to other villages, and we want them to know that you mean business. We want them to be ready for you, you know, a healthy fear. And so this village didn't receive you, and quite frankly, we're a little ticked off about it, so we want you to call down fire on this village. And it's like they're, I mean, it's like they're two little kids that think it's, you're going to say, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? I'm glad you're on my side. You see, sometimes the one time we feel the right to be angry is when we're defending Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we're not hurt for us. We're hurt for you. Call down fire. We're, we're offended for your sake. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Oops. A.K.A. not mine, and there's only one left. I'll give you three guesses. It's amazing that John was later called the apostle of love. <laughs> Something changed in John. But they thought, no, Jesus, we wouldn't have done this for us. Had they just insulted us, we would have said, let it go. But they insulted you. This is a righteous anger, Jesus. Stop it. Let Jesus handle his own stuff. Don't, don't be offended for his, don't be offended on his behalf. Walk in love. Now, does that mean you're a doormat? No. Jesus gave you an answer for that too. He said, if you've got a problem with somebody, you don't go to everybody else, you go to them. You talk to them. If you can't get that worked out, you bring the elders of the church in. There. He doesn't say, if you can't get that worked out, go to everybody else. He says, go to the elders of the church. If they still don't receive correction then, then it becomes a bigger issue. See, Jesus was prepared for this. I want you to know that this kind of fellowship is possible, but it's going to require that we are filled with the Spirit. 
that we are walking in love. And you know what? The love of God does not come from you reading more Bible verses, even though the word of God will instill these things in you. The love of God, the Bible says, comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can work up. It's something that's poured out in your heart by him. If you're noticing that your relationships are fraying at the edges, if you're noticing that you find yourself on all fronts, bitter, hurt, angry, I want to challenge you to stop looking at everybody else, start looking at you. And I say that because I have to do this all the time. We have to do this. You look at you and you go, Lord, have I been spending time with you enough that I can react like you react to this situation instead of reacting like I react? Because apart from him, you can't do anything. I believe in a church that has such fellowship with one another that you can honestly say we're of one mind, we're of one heart, one voice, one spirit, and it's not conjured up, it's not faked, it's real. And that you have such care for one another, such care for one another, that when one of the members is hurting, even if it was their fault, you hurt for them. And you do whatever you can to make it right. And that if one of the members is lacking, you take what you have and you give it. This is the Bible. And I can't force you to do that. That only comes from the Holy Spirit. But this is what the church is meant to look like. Friends, we've got enough enemies on the outside. Let's not start making them on the inside. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It'll never last. Now, did you keep your word at the beginning of the message? I'm applying it to you because I know the temptation is strong. I hope they're listening. <laughs> well, God wants to speak to you this morning. I trust that he has. I pray and I believe that Jesus prayed that perfect prayer for this, that we would be one as he and the Father were one, that the world may know that the Father sent him and that he sent us. He, the glory he had, he gave to us that we would be one.